And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, October 11th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how to quantify risk for your information so you can manage it and the risk better. Plus, paid administrative leave still plagues the federal workforce. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Chief Diversity Officer's Executive Council is looking to help agencies implement Biden administration's goals for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. The council creates government-wide strategies for DEIA, and it's just reached its one-year anniversary just last month. The council has set up some diversity goals, too. They're looking to raise the DEIA index score in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey six points by 2026. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from government-wide Chief Diversity Officer Janice Underwood. For the first time, we have created, the Biden administration has created this constituency in the workforce, the federal workforce, which are DEI&A leaders, these senior chief diversity officers who are trying to help agencies more robustly meet their missions, increase organizational health, increase employee experience so that we can increase customer experience. But having said all that, We see that these chief diversity officers needed sort of a North Star or a support. The Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility at OPM is that North Star because my team exists to help everyone else in agencies think about how to implement DEI&A to meet their agency missions. So our customers who we're trying to support are the chief diversity officers their leadership teams, all the way to the cabinet secretaries. How are they thinking about DEI&A? And that's exactly what this council has done. It's an interagency forum that allows these senior leaders to come together and innovate in real time and learn new uh, promising practices and triage problems. So we're really trying to help us think about organizational health from a DEI&A perspective. We created four working groups, and they each have a robust project plan. There are leaders of all those working groups. They meet weekly, and they are rolling up their sleeves and getting the work done so that we can identify who are the exemplars in these spaces and then help other agencies with policies and practices that can advance the DEI&A mission and really the spirit of Executive Order 14035. I would imagine that one of the interesting things about this position that you're in, which I know that you're the first one ever to hold this position, is you're basically overseeing government-wide DEIA, but also at the same time, each agency has its individual goals or challenges within DEIA. So how do you see the either your role or the council's role as looking at the specific challenges or goals of agencies to, to try to help them along there? How does that relationship work? All CDOs, no matter you are a small agency, a medium or a large agency, you have access to the government-wide chief diversity officer. They come to my office hours. They participate in the DEINA online learning community that we've created. And they regularly request technical assistance from my office. That was very intentional because we know that everyone is situated differently and everyone has different challenges. So we're trying to meet those challenges and be honest about those challenges 
And one of the things we instituted was a CDO survey so that we can figure out how are the challenges at EPA different from the challenges at State Department. We know that State Department has a domestic and a global footprint, but we also know that we have chief diversity officers that are squarely thinking about the American workforce and the federal workforce like at Department of Labor. And some agencies have lots of subcomponent agencies that they have to communicate with. And that information flows from the council down to those subcomponent agencies. So it's really important that we meet the CDOs where they are and their senior leaders. For the first time, we actually have a metric related to the D, the E, the I, and the A, all the four letters in our OPM FEVs survey. Now that we've developed a DEI and A index, my goal is to raise that government-wide by six points by September 2026. The FEVs for the next iteration is coming up relatively soon. So when you look at that data that's going to be coming out, what are you what are you really looking for there to try to tell if, I guess, you're on target for that long-term goal? Our 2022 baseline was 69%. And what that basically told us was that 69% of the federal workforce have positive perceptions of all the four letters, right? Of course, there are individual scores for all the four letters, but from a composite, 69%. Going forward, I'm on pins and needles, but I'm particularly interested to see if our composite score raises or lowers because we know that there is this national dialogue on what is DEI and A. And by the way, our lowest score last year was in equity. Equity was the score that the federal workforce sort of battled with the most because from 2021 to 2022, before we even launched it, people were having conversations like, what does equity mean to me? What is workforce equity in the context of my position? My hope is that over the last year and a half, two years, that we've done a good job, hopefully, of educating the federal workforce on what equity means in particular. So I want that composite score to raise, but I'm hoping that that very low equity score, which was 65 in 2022, would also raise because that's going to be the telltale sign. I'll get some indication on do we press a little harder? Do we expend our our, um, attention to different areas? Or how do we need to pivot? Because we are taking a data-driven approach. When you say data-driven approach, what is the type of data that you're looking at? Is it workforce demographics? Is it employee engagement? Like how how do you tell from the data what, what is happening with DEIA? When I think about our DEIA index, I'm also closely tracking the employee engagement index. And so I'm hoping those numbers go up as well. But um, some of the other metrics and some of the other data that we're supporting CDOs uh, government-wide are their workforce demographic uh, data. How are they thinking about their MD-715 data? And just this past summer, we launched a DEINA dashboard because we wanted to make sure that agencies have access to their DEINA data. And in this dashboard in future iterations will improve as we iterate and add more questions to the dashboard that we want to a- ask and answer. And those will come from the CDOs on those working groups. You mentioned a little bit earlier on that you do work 
to communicate with federal employees and different agencies to explain, you know, not only what is DEIA, but what is the work that is going on in this space. What are some of the things that you hear about or hear from employees about what they see in their in their day to day experience? So we hear things like we want more events. We want more programming. Um, We want to learn more. We want to get involved. We also hear from the federal workforce things like, what do you mean by workforce equity? What type of programming is OPM doing and how does that relate to workforce equity? Because I get increased diversity and I get increased inclusion and I get increased accessibility for people with disabilities, but I don't know what workforce equity means. We've done a lot to make sure that people understand that workforce equity is about making sure employees have what they need to be successful in their jobs. And we're trying to communicate that to those in the workforce and those who we aspire to be in the workforce, uh, making sure that we don't overlook anyone. So let me give you an example. We noticed, and the data is clear, that less than 7% of the federal workforce is under 30. That's catastrophic when we also think about who's ready and eligible to retire. So one dimension of diversity that is top of mind for me and OPM writ large. Any recommendations to agencies who might be struggling more than others to advance DEIA priorities? OPM put out a guidance document to agencies who are struggling on how to hire a chief diversity officer or chief diversity and inclusion officer. And so I recommend agencies to revisit that document. I think that they should and they would enjoy reading it to understand that one of the things OPM Director Karen Ahuja said is that this position needs to be a position that has influence in the organization and be a senior leader. We need to go out and talk about who's doing the work and start to partner, and this is exactly what we've done, partner those agencies that are doing great things in one area with other agencies who are struggling and have some peer coaching. And then the last thing is come talk to us because those agencies who are struggling, they can request technical assistance from me and my team. We can coach them through and make sure that they have um, the theoretical and practical knowledge that they need to implement a DEI and a strategy for their agency. So they need to give me a call. Janice Underwood, government-wide chief diversity officer at the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, paid administrative leave, it still plagues the federal workforce. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before as the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture 
and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model 
has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.